Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello again, I'm Nico Perino, and this is So To Speak, the free speech podcast where, as you know, every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. My conversation today is with the Harvard professor Steven Pinker. I suspect many of our listeners will already be well familiar with Professor Pinker and his work. But before we get to that conversation, I have some First Amendment news to cover. It's been a while since I've been able to do a proper monologue introduction to a podcast, since, uh, as you know, our past couple of episodes have either been live events or podcasts co-produced by a FIRE colleague. But today we're back to our standard interview format, so I have some space to chat about what's going on in the world of free speech. And perhaps the biggest news is that on Monday, the Supreme Court granted cert or agreed to review three new First Amendment cases this term, bringing the total number of First Amendment cases under review this term to five. The three new cases are, the first one is Minnesota Voters Alliance v. Mansky, which asks whether a Minnesota statute that broadly bans all political apparel at the polling place is facially overbroad under the First Amendment. The other one is Lozman v. City of Riviera Beach, Florida, which addresses whether the existence of probable cause defeats a First Amendment retaliatory arrest claim as a matter of law. And the final new case is National Institute of Family and Life Advocates v. Becerra, which considers whether the disclosures required by the California Reproductive Fact Act violate the protections set forth in the free speech clause of the First Amendment, applicable, of course, to the states through the 14th Amendment. Of course, there were already two other First Amendment cases on the court's docket this term. Those are Janus v. American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, and the much-talked-about Masterpiece Cake Shop v. Colorado Civil Rights Commission, for which the court, as many of you may be aware, is hearing oral argument on December 5th, and about which I'm considering hosting a live podcast debate sometime and somewhere next year. So stay tuned. I should say that Bloomberg is actually reporting that there are six First Amendment cases this year because it's considering the gerrymandering case Gil v. Whitford, a First Amendment case, and uh, it's doing so, according to its report, based upon Justice Kennedy's suggestion during oral argument that challenges to partisan gerrymanders would be based on the First Amendment's protections for free speech and free association. We'll see about that. Uh, Ron Collins, actually, who many of you are familiar with, he's a he's a First Amendment scholar and, and regular podcast guest. He had an interesting takeaway about the acceptance of these three new First Amendment cases. He wrote for concurring opinions that, generally speaking, the Roberts Court seems to have made free speech under the First Amendment its centerpiece constitutional law issue, the only court ever seemingly to do so. He writes that the Rehnquist Court... Uh, centerpiece constitutional law issue was federalism. For Berger, it was criminal justice. Warren, equal protection. Vinson, the communist era cases. Hughes, the commerce clause, and the list goes on. The Robert Court, according to Ron, is the only one to make free speech its centerpiece, and I find that fascinating. Uh, And finally, I want to talk about a quick 
a couple of items here, so I'll do them rapid fire. Uh, one is that former podcast guest and NYU professor Stephen Solomon has a new website out called First Amendment Watch, which documents threats to the First Amendment freedoms of speech, press, and assembly and petition. Uh, and that website can be found at firstamendmentwatch.org. Uh, FIRE has, as well, a new survey that came out last month called Speaking Freely, what students think about expression at American colleges. And to our knowledge, it's the largest study ever conducted of student attitudes about speech on campus. And among the findings is that a majority of college students self-censor themselves, support disinvitations of some speakers, and don't know that hate speech, generally speaking, is protected by the First Amendment. There are also a number of other free speech surveys that have happened to come out in recent months, uh, including a fascinating one from Cato. And if you head over to thefire.org, we digest them all. And lastly, in this rapid fire First Amendment news segment, I want to point your attention to a new history of film censorship timeline that we have at FIRE's First Amendment library. The timeline chronicles Hollywood's continuous battle for strong First Amendment protections and creative freedom. So if you swing on over to the First Amendment library at thefire.org, you can check it out. And I want to um, extend a kudos to my colleague Jackie Farmer for working to put it together. Okay, so now let's get on to today's guest, Professor Steven Pinker. Professor Pinker is a member of FIRE's Advisory Council and the John Stone Family Professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. He's a rock star academic who has written 10 books, including most recently the best-selling Better Angels of Our Nature and The Sense of Style. He has a new book actually coming out on February 27th of next year entitled Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and progress. So we talk about that new book, but we also talk about taboo, common knowledge, free speech, free inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and much, much more during this conversation. And we actually end with a couple of book recommendations from the professor. Uh, I'll note here that the conversation was recorded over the phone on October 31st. That's Halloween. So if this spooky <laughs> conversation sounds like a phone conversation, well, it is. So here's Professor Pinker. By way of starting, I guess my first question is, what first got you interested in issues of civil rights and liberties on campus, in particular the freedoms of speech and inquiry? It began with uh, thinking through questions about human nature. Uh, are there um, innate tendencies toward, um, well, originally language, but then uh, toward violence and revenge and uh, familial feelings, uh, tribalism, differences between the sexes, uh, that um, I discovered were academic taboos. So uh, when you study human nature, you're bound to bump into issues that have political and moral and uh, cultural repercussions. And it was when I uh, first wrote How the Mind Works, and I saw that much of the reaction to the ideas there was not so much scientific as uh, political. And that it wasn't simply a matter of airing political disagreements. Uh, which, of course, is uh, what, what we're in the business of doing, but uh, often suppressing uh, unpopular opinions. That's interesting, because I recall you worked with the editor John Brockman on a book, uh, I think it was called Dangerous Ideas, or it looked at dangerous ideas. What is your dangerous idea? That's right, and I wrote the introduction. 
Well, can you tell us a little bit about the impetus for that idea and more generally what the consequences are, good and bad, of taboo in the academy? The um, title itself uh, was borrowed from um, Dan Dennett's book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, uh, the theory of evolution, of course, being a prime example of an idea that was considered too dangerous in its uh, era, but has since become uh, common knowledge as conventional wisdom among uh, all scientifically literate people. And the idea that humans descended from uh, a, a ape-like common ancestor, though it's still controversial among fundamentalists, among educated people, it's no longer considered to be uh, morally incendiary. Uh, I think that uh, one of the reasons that uh, John Brockman thought of uh, that as the topic for his annual question on his website, edge.org, is that uh, the preceding year had seen the, uh, the, the defenestration of, of uh, Larry Summers as president of Harvard um, for a uh, talk that he gave in, uh, at an a, a economics conference in which he suggested that part of the uh, difference in representation of women in uh, elite universities, um, departments of uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics was because there may be innate differences between the sexes, and it created a, uh, uh, an uproar, and, and uh, people were enraged. People um, attributed to him all kinds of crazy beliefs that he never uh, said. Uh, but it was um, seemed to indicate that there were certain topics that you just could not discuss if you were, or certain um, hypotheses that you could not entertain if you were an academic, and I think that was one of the reasons that John, in consultation with me and a number of his other close uh, advisors, thought would be a, uh, a good topic for the edge question that year. You've talked about the issue of this concept of common knowledge before, the idea that everyone knows something to be true but is afraid to speak up and say that is something uh, that something is true, The, the of course metaphor here is the emperor wearing no clothes or not wearing any clothes. Is there anything in the academy today that professors all know to be true, but feel they cannot discuss lest there be some sort of pushback on campus or off? Well, the the prime example that I give is um, intelligence, where academics are obsessed with intelligence of their colleagues, of their students, they gossip over uh, beer or in the, in the uh, quarters is, uh, oh, you know, he's really smart or, uh, you know, she's really brilliant. We really, we really got to have to attract her as a, uh, onto our faculty or as a grad student or he's not very bright. So you, you just can't have a conversation in academia without at some point appealing to intelligence, actually frequently appealing to intelligence. But when people switch into <clears throat> intellectualizing mode, they insist that, uh, uh, Intelligence is just what intelligence tests measure. It doesn't uh, predict anything in the world. It's um, uh, the, the tests that measure it are inherently biased against uh, minorities. All of which are topics that have been extensively researched in the field of psychometrics, and where the answers are, are completely clear. Uh, intelligence does exist. It predicts a lot. It can be measured. The tests, uh, by and large, are not biased. But there's a, a disconnect between the way people act. Uh, act uh, in their private discussions and the positions that they uh, will, will publicly embrace. Now there is the, um, the idea that, uh, that there are no differences between the sexes. You couldn't possibly uh, engage in any kind of gossip, personal advice, uh, 
comments on, uh, on on events of the day, uh, you know, advice that you give to your your, your sons and daughters without uh, uh, acknowledging that, uh, that that men and women aren't identical, certainly not in their sexuality. But then, when again, when it comes to um, intellectualizing, uh, people will defy both the common sense of their casual conversations and a, a fair amount of empirical evidence that the sexes are not indistinguishable and um, embrace the idea that any differences we see between the sexes must be the result of stereotyping and, and biases and barriers. You've been in the academy for quite some time now. There was an article in the New York Times today. I don't have the article in front of me, so I can't, I can't give the title, but it talks about how professors are increasingly afraid of broaching controversial topics in their classrooms. I think some of the cases that we've seen around the country give lend some credence to that concern. Is this a new concern? Have you experienced it? And, and if it's not a new concern, is it just the topics that professors are afraid to broach are changing? I'm always wary of um, the, the fallacy of saying, of pointing to something that's happening now and concluding that um, therefore they're getting it's getting worse. <laughs> you wrote a whole book. Though. You wrote a whole book about that fallacy. <laughs> exactly. I wrote a whole book about that fallacy when it comes to violence, and I have a book coming out in uh, February that uh, extends that analysis to other dimensions of human well-being. So, uh, yeah, I think that uh, professors probably do avoid certain topics, but you know, in the 1970s, there were an awful lot of professors who were picketed, shouted down, sometimes physically assaulted. Uh, for um, uh, for discussing topics that even today you probably could discuss uh, as long as you didn't get too close to certain third rails. Um, so the um, uh, E.O. Wilson, for example, after he published Sociobiology, had to face chanting mobs. And um, uh, Richard Hernstein, my late uh, Harvard colleague, uh, even before he discussed anything related to race, simply for saying that uh, that intelligence was heritable and that it entered into... Uh, life outcomes like income got um, uh, physically threatened and uh, um, picketed and uh, drowned out and so on. So it's, it's by no means a new thing. I have to add that uh, so far, at least, I uh, discuss a number of controversial topics in my introductory uh, psychology class I have for, for uh, more than 20 years, and I have uh, not once faced any kind of uh, illiberal reaction. I discuss sex differences. I discuss uh, innate tendencies toward aggression. Certainly discuss uh, evolution of the mind. Uh, I discuss intelligence, um, heritability of uh, psychological traits, and um, uh, at least so far, I've had no problems. And do you find that your students engage meaningfully with these topics? Because we we see in the headlines, of course, that when these topics are discussed. Uh, maybe outside the classroom, maybe outside of a Harvard classroom. Uh, they are shouted down. They are protested. We saw, of course, what happened to Charles Murray, whatever you may make of his, his, his research. How do you feel your students are engaging with this? And is it just more of the same of what you've seen over your 30, 30 or so year career? Um, you know, it, it might be getting worse, but it was pretty bad in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I have a poster that I show my class uh, from 1984 when E.O. Wilson uh, was giving a lecture at the University of Toronto, and the poster said, uh, come and denounce the uh, prophet of right-wing patriarchy, uh, bring noisemakers. Uh, and that was, you know, that was 1984, so that's 33 years ago. Um, 
so you know, unless we had a, a graph showing number of uh, protests of controversial speakers, I would not be ready to say that there's been a dramatic increase, but there, there might have been. Uh, I think also it depends on the, on the topic. There's some topics that are on the edge of um, uh, discussability that I think if presented in a uh, in context with a distinction between the empirical and the moral political, um, then uh, uh, one takes a risk in, in discussing them, but they can be discussed. There are others that are just third rails that uh, that uh, you, you touch them and you and, and you die. Uh, certainly, race and intelligence is one of them. Um, eugenics or dysgenics, that is, is the population getting smarter or, or not. Uh, and I list a number of them in um, the introduction to the volume, What is Your Dangerous Idea? Uh, so, so some are, uh, so a lot depends on uh, which topics you discuss, and it may not be uh, uh, wise or politic to discuss every topic that, uh, that occurs to you, especially those where there just isn't really a whole lot of scholarship that uh, settles the, that bears on the question one way or another, um, and, and I think it's it's probably wise not to give um, uh, you know, huge attention to topics that are both uh, incendiary and uh, poorly poorly researched and understood. I want to pivot a bit to this concept of freedom of speech, which I know you've written and advocated for, written about and advocated for. Uh, for a long time now. You're a cognitive psychologist by trade. I know there's many fields within psychology, but we've seen a few writers look at the free speech, free inquiry issue from the psychological perspective recently. I'm thinking of two articles in particular, one by my colleague Greg Lukianoff and NYU professor Jonathan Haidt. Uh, They wrote a widely read piece for the Atlantic called The Coddling of the American Mind, uh, which they're now actually turning into a book. And the piece argued that some of the ideas being taught to students on campus, including some of the ideas undergirding censorship, are engendering patterns of thought or cognitive distortions that are similar to those long identified by cognitive behavioral therapists as causing depression and anxiety. And then there was also Jeffrey Miller, who's an evolutionary psychologist at the University of New Mexico, who we've actually had on this podcast before. He wrote the article called The Neurodiversity Case for Free Speech. And the idea presented in that article is that speech codes presume neurotypicality and are therefore discriminatory on that basis. I just wanted to get your sense of the increasing psychological arguments for free speech, whether you think they're good, bad, or still undecided. Yeah, I think free speech is fundamentally not a psychological uh, issue. It is um, really a a moral, political, even logical issue. Uh, Namely, if you are discussing anything, it presupposes your right to discuss that thing and everything else. And so without free speech, the very idea of discussing anything becomes... uh, uh, meaningless or self-contradictory. Free speech really is prior to anything else. Uh, it is certainly interesting to, in addition to considering the arguments for free speech, ask uh, what are the psychological um, roots of opposition to free speech or defenses of free speech, but, uh, but ultimately it is, a, uh, it, it is not a psychological issue. In terms of why there has been uh, a... Um, um, uh, a set of illiberal reactions in the current generation of um, students. Uh, I, I, I found um, 
the article by Vukayanov and Haidt to be extremely interesting. But I'm, uh, I think there's an alternative hypothesis to consider, uh, which is not, necess- not that um, the current generation have been uh, coddled, cosseted, helicoptered over, and therefore have an emotional reaction to um, uh, unwelcome ideas. But there's an alternative hypothesis. They're not mutually exclusive, which is that because there's been so, so much social progress, so much um, uh, acknowledgement of the harms of racism and sexism and homophobia, that it creates uh, uh, an opening to uh, constantly up the ante, to um, challenge the uh, uh, intellectual establishment to... Uh, Double down on their commitment against uh, against racism and sexism and homophobia, and it creates an opening for uh, moralistic warriors who can uh, commit acts of moralistic aggression, try to uh, exert dominance over uh, other people by saying, "We're no matter how much you deny you're a racist, we're going to show that you still are a racist, and therefore we are um, better than better than you, and we have uh, we can exact." Uh, compensation and um, press demands, and so far from being a response of of, um, of, of psychological weakness or vulnerability, uh, I suspect that a lot of these challenges to free speech are actually acts of aggression, and they might particularly be appealing to um, to, to students because uh, you know when you're young you haven't accomplished a whole lot. How could you? You're young, uh, and uh, in the inevitable competition for status among uh, all groups, uh, one way that the young can always lord it over their elders is that they are morally superior. The elders are, uh, are, are, are complicit in some evil regime. And so, and because uh, the establishment is so uh, uh, ready to combat racism and to admit of uh, lingering um, prejudice and racism, um, they've kind of rolled over and, and, and um, created an opening for them to be, uh, themselves to be attacked and are terrified of fighting back lest they uh, uh, seem, even by their own standards, to be insufficiently opposed to, uh, to racism. Is there a concern about that going too far, though? Because we recall that in Maoist China, for example, one of the great principles, one of the ways to move society that society forward was to get the young people to rise up against their parents, their teachers, those that uh, you know were proponents or members of the old system of doing things. Oh, absolutely, and I mean, of course, the Cultural Revolution in China led to a. Uh mass murder it was, it was uh, literally a genocide uh, and, and um, millions died and so so there definitely is the, the danger but i think it, i think there is something of an analogy that uh and this is an alternative hypothesis to greg and john's as to why we're seeing this outburst of illiberalism that it's more it's kind of generational warfare uh rather than um uh trauma and vulnerability one of the two arguments that i'm seeing most often presented in opposition to free inquiry and freedom of speech is one uh, that speech can be violence. It can cause emotional harm. And then the other one is that certain speakers, by the act of speaking, deny people their humanity. And I recall that you had an interaction with NYU professor Ulrich Baer 
I think it was you, uh, at Kenyon College back in September, whereby he presented this argument and you asked him what speakers would qualify as denying some other uh, listeners humanity, and he, he refused to name them. Uh, what do you make of those two arguments? Because you did say that a uh, some some students' response to free speech is an act of aggression. Uh, you know, are they responding to violence? Yeah, no. I think both. I think both arguments are are uh, uh, ridiculous. Uh, I think they have not not, not even a slightest uh, drop of merit. Uh, the thing is that uh, all debate makes someone feel bad. If you're going to define feeling bad as violence, that means that you can never discuss uh, anything that anyone disagrees with. Uh, no doubt arguments against slavery, against racial discrimination, against um, uh, uh, women's rights made some people feel bad, uh, but uh, feeling bad is not the same thing as violence, and uh, it is inevitable that uh, in any kind of uh, open discourse, there'll be people who uh, get upset at opinions uh, that are expressed. If you define that as violence, you're saying that no one can ever discuss anything uh, ever again. So that, that's, a, that's an argument that's just completely ridiculous, even though I know that uh, some, some smart people have uh, advanced it, showing that uh, you know, when, you, when you hear an opinion you don't like, things happen in your brain that, that uh, uh, underlie the response of stress and, and uh, distress. Uh, is completely irrelevant. Grown-ups uh, accept the fact that uh, debate will leave some people feeling uh, unhappy, and that uh, and the, the answer is too bad. If you're a grown-up, if you're engaged in intellectual discourse, there are going to be times in which you feel unhappy. That's not violence. Uh, the uh, accusation that uh, um, uh, that particular opinions uh, deny people their humanity is. Uh, also, I think, devoid of, uh, of logic. I mean, unless someone is actually saying so-and-so is less than human or this group is less than human. But to advance a hypothesis about, say, that the sexes aren't indistinguishable, that there may be some, some differences, or even, even uh, um, if there are well-documented um, claims about uh, differences among uh, ethnic groups or races, uh, the uh, question of whether people are... Um, identical is different from the question of whether people should be uh, treated fairly, whether they should be given uh, equal rights. And uh, it is a blunder to say that the only reason that people should have equal rights is that they're all clones. Uh, If anything, that works against the principle of uh, universal rights, because it suggests that if ever science were to find that there are differences among people, therefore we'd be entitled to take away their rights. That is a monstrous conclusion, and if it's a monstrous conclusion, then one has to uh, also accept the fact that uh, that there may be differences among people which have nothing to do with whether they are entitled to equal rights and equal protection. Yeah, well, one of the I mean, one of the retorts that we hear often from people who oppose even the research of differences among peoples is that what do you do with that knowledge? Do you think that? Certain topics for research should be off limits, not necessarily because the it's interesting to know what the outcomes b- might be, but rather because there's nothing we could do with the outcomes that would be good for society. I'm, I don't think it's unreasonable to prioritize certain topics to um, present and, and to present the results that we do have in a, a tactful way, the same as we do in ordinary human interaction 
where we don't blurt out things in the most uh, um, uh, blatant possible way, um, and, and, and certainly topics where, it, as they are uh, researched, could lead to could clearly lead to to, to um, social harm and very little scientific payoff. Uh, you know, they could be downplayed. They could be put low on the agenda. Uh, I don't think we, we should lie about anything, but you don't have to uh, study everything. You can't study everything about everything, and the choices that you make could reflect the, uh, the, the harm that they do. I don't think that's an unreasonable. Another philosophy that I don't think people are cognizant that they're supporting, uh, but that very much undergirds a lot of the debates we're seeing around camper censorship stems from the philosopher who you, whose work you may or may not be familiar with, Herbert Marcuse. And he, he wrote in the 1960s an essay called Repressive Tolerance, which argued that we shouldn't be tolerant of intolerance. And if that means censorship, so be it. Do you find any merit to Marcuse's general thesis I uh, know, and then I'm certainly familiar with Marcuse because he was a uh, 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 kind of a, a rock star, star uh, uh, intellectual when I was in uh, university in the 1970s. Uh, no, I, I don't see any merit, merit to that. I, again, I'm uh, there are uh, there have been uh, limits proposed to free speech in American ju- First Amendment jurisprudence that I'm. Uh, that I'm on board with, uh, threats, extortion, um, blackmail, uh, incitement to uh, immediate violence. But uh, other than those very narrowly circumscribed exceptions, if you um, uh, define intolerance as something that you are permitted not to tolerate, it is such an elastic category that you can simply use it to shut up anyone that you disagree with. Uh, And indeed, uh, one only has to imagine uh, how uh, repressive governments could have a field day with the uh, allowance that they could repress anyone who uh, advocates intolerance to see the, the uh, great damage that that uh, policy would do. Yeah, groups like Antifa, though, argue that it's the tolerance of intolerance that gave rise to fascist dictators like Hitler, like Mussolini. Are they wrong on that premise? Yeah, historically they're wrong. They're, uh, those uh, groups uh, came to power with uh, armed militias and gangs of thugs that would assassinate um, journalists that they disagreed with, that would ransack the offices of uh, newspapers, that would create conditions of violent chaos, leading to opposition by their counterparts on the left, by, by uh, communist gangs of thugs, that led people to feel that society was descending into chaos uh, and that led them to welcome uh, a strong man who would restore order to the streets. So, yeah, I think they have the history backwards. What do you make of identity politics generally? Because it's certainly a part of this conversation that we're having. Yeah, I think it's, uh, like a number of others, I think it is pernicious that ideas are true or false or have merit or don't, uh, regardless of who is uh, advocating them or, or arguing for them. There is uh, a separate multiplication table for men and women or for, for uh, African Americans or European Americans. Um, that uh, there's, there's certainly cases of uh, uh, oppression of uh, racial minorities and of uh, women that, that ought to be opposed, 
but that uh, the, the way that we find the most uh, the, the best policies for improving human welfare and reducing injustice are to treat ideas on their merits, not on the basis of the color of the skin or the, uh, the presence of a Y chromosome in the people making the, making the argument. Indeed, in a, in a uh, uh, great irony, the identity politics is uh, one of the most racist doctrines ever uh, advanced because it suggests that uh, all people of a, with a, of a given race have to have the same opinion um, and that the, uh, we should evaluate uh, ideas based on the color of the skin or the genitalia of the people making them, which is highly, highly racist and sexist. Ideas have to be evaluated on their merits. Well, I know you're busy here, so I only have two more questions for you. Uh, the first is about a book that you have coming out on February 27th of next year. I believe it's February 27th of next year called, yeah, called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. I want to ask why this book now? Do you feel that Enlightenment values are on life support? I think back to an article I just read this weekend in the Washington Post, uh, written by a professor at Reed College, who discussed how her students believe concepts like nuance, logic, and careful reasoning are tools of the oppressor and therefore support systems of white supremacy. These are, of course, tools of thinking championed by Enlightenment thinkers. Are you seeing an attack on the Enlightenment now that prompted your writing this book? Yes, uh, and part of it comes from the, uh, the the political correctness police, social justice warriors, identity politicians on the left. Uh, part of it, uh, obviously, a more severe threat comes from the Trumpian right. Um, more severe because they control the levers of power. Uh, there's the old quip that academic debates are fierce because so little is at stake. But uh, when it comes to control of the uh, presidency and the Congress, uh, the fate of the world is at stake. So the assaults come from both directions, and the fact that uh, that you and I, and I assume many of the listener, listeners of this podcast, are concerned about campus illiberalism, shouldn't let us lead us to forget the uh, the fact that the uh, the most the, the greatest dangers come from those who actually do have power. But yeah, the, the threats come from from both sides, and um, and they even reinforce each other. For one thing, each one is partly a reaction to the other. But also they lead among people who are neither uh, hard left or hard right just to become cynical and fatalistic about our prospects for improvement. And a major theme of the book is that the, um, uh, the, the pervasive negativity of intellectuals and the press, the, the relentless pessimism, the idea that, we, uh, that everywhere you look there's a crisis, that society is getting uh, at worse, we're going to be doomed by existential threats, leads people to give up on uh, problem-solving analysis, uh, the, the conviction that we can use knowledge to better the human condition, a, a conviction that I show in the book uh, actually has bettered the human condition. If you step away from the headlines, which almost by definition uh, uh, remind us of what's going wrong, uh, if you look at data on how long people live, how likely they are to, to uh be uh, killed in, a, in a homicide, how likely they are to die in war, how likely they are to die of disease, how many hours of free time they have, then uh, humanity has been getting better and better thanks to the fact that we have applied our intelligence and problem-solving skills combined with a concern for the, 
well-being of humanity to improve the human condition, something that you, you rarely hear about from either intellectuals or people in the press or politicians. And that if um, the picture of the world that you described is one of uh, uh, deepening crisis, people can be either apathetic or um, uh, gravitate toward extremists who want to uh, wreck institutions and, and smash the machine. In that sense, this book then is a companion to the better angels of our nature, This the idea. And, and would you say that it's the Enlightenment values that, that gave rise to this decline in violence and all the other good things we see? In, in large part, yes. Not, not completely, because there are other trends that are more, uh, that are less intellectually driven, uh, that are kind of byproducts of processes like the uh, rise of um, commerce and the consolidation of uh, um, state power. But, um, but some, some of the more, most salient ones, the uh, democracy as opposed to absolute uh, monarchy, the abolition of slavery, abolition of cruel punishments, the uh, renunciation of war, those are all gifts of the Enlightenment, together, of course, with the conquest of disease, the uh, rise of affluence, the decline of poverty, and uh, other gifts. Including the freedom of speech, in, in large part. It's no surprise that FIRE co-founder Alan Charles Coors was a professor of the Enlightenment at the University of Pennsylvania and a great scholar of Voltaire and an editor of the Encyclopedia of the Enlightenment, I believe. Free speech is an Enlightenment idea. Absolutely, yes. In, in fact, the founding essay on the Enlightenment, Immanuel Kant's What is Enlightenment?, uh, highlights free speech as uh, as one of the um, generators of enlightenment. I haven't read that essay, so that is now going on my reading list. Very sure. What is enlightenment? Question mark. <laughs> yeah, well, that actually is a great segue to my last question, which is, are there any books, movies, or other popular media that you can recommend to our listener about any of the ideas we've spoken about today, stuff that has shaped your thinking on these issues? You mean like uh, fictional accounts in the movies or, or novels? Well, it could be nonfiction or fiction, just you know, th- something that has shaped your thinking on the freedom of speech, the freedom of inquiry. Uh, it could be viewpoint diversity, uh, something that our readers can come away from this podcast and explore. Well, let's see. Where do I begin? Thomas Nagel's book, uh, The Last Word, uh, on um, why uh, objectivity, truth, reason are uh, non-negotiable. Uh, opposed to the kind of relativism and uh, subjectivity that are are so popular in, in a lot of uh, universities, humanities departments. Short book, but uh, a, a rigorous analysis of why we uh, why why reason, truth, and objectivity are non-negotiable. So that, that's one uh, uh, kind of a history lesson on why uh, what we have to lose in in societies that give up. Uh, Fundamental Freedoms, uh, and a, a book that influenced me is by a, another philosopher, Jonathan Glover, called Humanity, A Moral History of the 20th Century, with sometimes gruesome reminders of uh, the, the horrors of um, Stalinist Russia, Nazi Germany, the World Wars, Maoist China, uh, I think lessons that are, are uh, perhaps too easy to forget. Well, those will certainly go on my reading list as well. Um, Professor Pinker, I I know you're a busy man, so I'll let you get to it. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Harvard professor and Fire Advisory Council member Stephen Pinker. His forthcoming book, available for pre-order now, is called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. 
And a reminder of the professor's reading list from this podcast, he recommended Immanuel Kant's What is the Enlightenment, Thomas Nagel's The Last Word, and Jonathan Glover's Humanity, The Moral History of the 20th Century. All of those books can be purchased or pre-ordered using smile.amazon.com and selecting the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education as your charity of choice. This means that a portion of your purchase will actually go to support FIRE's work and consequently this podcast. Speaking of this podcast, it is hosted and produced and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. As I've said repeatedly, reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And again, until next time, I thank you all for listening. Listening.